0: Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Three weeks ago, we looked at verse 3 and took a general bird's eye view of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, what was on his heart and what uh, the angels think about what God's doing in our lives. Two weeks ago, I preached on this passage that I've just read. At Tri Lakes, rather at Black Forest Reform Church, and developed a different approach and look to look more specifically at these seven blessings that are mentioned in these verses. This passage reminds me of that famous doxology written in 1674 by Thomas Ken: "Praise God from whom all blessings flow." Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Apostle Paul, at this point of writing this letter, has given 30 years of his life since the Lord arrested him on the road to Damascus. He was breathing out threats and bent on destroying the church, this This work of God bringing Jew and Gentile together through faith in Jesus Christ. This mystery that we read about, that Paul in Colossians speaks of this mystery, God in you, the hope of glory. God is dwelling in our midst. We're Gentiles. We're part of that that glorious mystery that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, that privilege he was given to proclaim to the nations. The gospel is meant to shine in this dark world through our life together, through Christ walking in our midst, dwelling in our hearts. We are the temple of God, being fitly framed as a place of worship and a place for God to dwell. The Apostle Paul here, in writing these letters, Ephesians Philippians, Colossians to uh, these churches was probably under house arrest at least that's the picture we have at the end of Acts we know that he was released and then later arrested so he's probably within two years of being executed and he's been in prison whether it's house arrest or uh, he he speaks of being chained to a soldier soldiers and how the gospel went out to the uh, the Soldiers uh, in that uh, contingent, the Apostle Paul spent his time climbing the Mount Everest of biblical redemptive history. He was a mountaineer, a spiritual mountaineer. He climbed the heights and enjoyed the vista and the view that only diligent and persevering meditation upon the works of God can bring. Mount Everest is 29,029 feet above sea level. Airliners fly at that altitude, and I find riding in a commercial airline to be one of the most thrilling experiences, because I get to look out the window if it's not cloudy, and even the clouds are beautiful. But to look at the landscape and the, the panoramic view below. The International Space Station is 250 miles above the Earth. What a view of this beautiful, blue, pristine planet. From space it seems pristine. must be. The moon is 238,855 miles away from the Earth. I think I mentioned before that when... I was in high school. My father and I and two of his friends climbed to the peaks of Monumental Peak, a 13er, 13,373 feet above sea level at the Continental Divide. And I remember that long and arduous journey to that mountain peak. I remember being awakened early in the morning before dawn, and we trekked on to that that uh, summit. We reached the rocky Crags of monumental peak and what of you? It was breathtaking and inspiring and exhilarating. And then suddenly, without warning, a thunderstorm moved in. Dark clouds, thunder and lightning and hail. I was terrified. I know it must have been something like that for Moses and for the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The thunder and the lightning, the gloom and the darkness. We hunkered down under our parkas, our ponchos, and crowded against the uh, the rocky crags for protection. When the storm was passed and the skies were cleared, we took one last view of that panoramic Rocky Mountain system and came back down to earth. The Apostle Paul wanted these Ephesians to join him in this spiritual mountaineering to make the effort to climb to the highest peaks of biblical revelation to catch a glimpse of the wonders of what God is doing in and through the church. Things that thrill the angels. We read about it uh, last uh, three weeks ago, that passage in Ephesians where uh, Paul speaks of the the angels and displaying the wisdom. I mentioned Calvin writing in his institutes God willed to appoint the angels to care for our salvation. Hebrews 1.14 Consequently they attend sacred assemblies in Hebrews 12 and the church is for them a theater in which they marvel at the varied and manifold wisdom of God. Think of it. Angels are leaning over heaven's balcony, sitting on the edge of their seats, watching the drama of God's amazing grace unfold in the lives of His people. God is displaying His manifold wisdom, His many-colored wisdom. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the analogy of the prism that breaks down the white light into the spectrum of the rainbow. The church is like a prism to display the wonderful, variegated wisdom of God in the way He deals with each of us individually. I love to hear the story of how believers have come to faith in Christ. I'd love to hear your story. And if we spend time together, it won't be long before I ask you, how did you come to know and love Jesus? How did He break into your life? How did He rescue you from the depths of Sheol? to place you on such heights, to seat you with Christ in the heavenly places. In high school, our, our biology teacher, Mr. Porter, would take us on field trips out into the countryside around Quinter, ha- Quinter, Kansas, around Quinter High School. And I remember learning about the marvels of the natural world, but the wonders of redemptive history and divine provis- providence excel them all. Paul's pastoral aim here was to encourage the saints at Ephesus. The Spirit wants you to be encouraged so that you don't faint in the face of difficulties and trials. God wants to buoy up your spirits, but you must, in response to him, meditate on the wonders of his grace. I often prayed as a young boy, as I prepared to read the Bible, Lord, open my eyes. To behold wonderful things in your law. The panoramic view of this system of biblical mountain peaks is beyond description, and it can take a lifetime to even begin to pierce into the depths of this. At a, in AD 62, about two years before his execution, Paul is in prison. He will die at about age 65. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, alienated from God, but God has brought you near. You, Jews and Gentiles in one new humanity, are displaying the wonders of God's grace to the world and to the angels. Let me <clears throat> Let me read these verses. My intention here this morning is to look very specifically at these blessings that come from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the way I divide them up, I count seven. I like I'm partial to the number seven. it's the perfect number, and maybe I'm pressing too much, but you may divide it up differently, but listen as Paul. Bursts forth into praise after having spent weeks and months perhaps thinking about these things. He's he's on the mountaintop. He wants you to share in this view. And he bursts forth into praise. I think I read this from Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this passage. Redemption always leads to praise. It bursts forth at once in the word blessed. The Apostle seems to be like a man who is conducting a great choir and orchestra. It is the characteristic of some of his greatest choruses. Think of the opening note of worthy is the lamb. The Apostle starts off with the same tremendous burst of praise and adoration. Blessed be God. Praised be God. He always does. Examine all his epistles and you will find that this is so. The first thing is always praise and thanksgiving. And this is so because he understood the doctrine. It was the result of his contemplation of the doctrine that he praises God. And I like to think of praise and thanksgiving, a thankful spirit and gratitude as one of the vital signs of your spiritual health. If you're focused on yourself, if you're down and discouraged and fainting and too weak to climb these mountains in your estimation. You won't behold these wonders and you won't be as full of joy. Peter spoke of joy inexpressible, full of glory in writing to saints who were being persecuted. In this life we have many tribulations. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not exempt. I'm not exempt. We face trials and troubles to purify our faith and to perfect our character and to prepare us for glory and to make us more useful as his servants and so Paul here bursts forth into praise because he's been contemplating these glorious truths that um, make you feel that you're in rarefied air in the mountain heights it can leave you breathless Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth. In him also we have received an inheritance that I prefer the translation, the rendering. In him also we have been made an heritage. We're God's heritage. As we'll look at more, more specifically. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will that we who were the first to hope in christ should live for the praise of his glory in him you also after hearing the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and after believing in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Early on in my ministry, I learned to pray in conscious communion with each person of the Trinity in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John Owen has a great treatise on that, in communion with God. And it just rocked my world to realize that when we come to God, In prayer and praise, we are worshiping the blessed triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want you to see that in this passage. I want you to see, first of all, that these things were planned and determined before the foundation of the world. Before God even created the angels, he had a plan. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into a covenant of redemption or a pact of salvation They drew up a a covenant and the Father laid forth in architectural design the plan and purpose for the ages. And the Son willingly volunteered Himself to lay His glory aside and enter into a world of sin and evil and adulterous idolatry that we read about this morning in order to redeem those that the Father had chosen and given to Him and bring sons to glory, many sons and daughters to glory as he leads them through this earthly journey. And the Holy Spirit agreed to shine the light on Christ, to give God the glory, the Father and the Son, and to be the one through whom we have this fellowship and to bless us with these spiritual blessings. We look first of all to verses 3 through 6a, where he praises the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for two blessings. There are two blessings mentioned for the Father. From the Father, there are three from the Son and two from the Holy Spirit that we'll look at this morning. The first is divine election. The second is divine predestination. These doctrines are high mysteries, and the Confession of Faith tells us to handle them with great care. And be careful to give the biblical balance. Verses 3 through 6a. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've already mentioned Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the spiritual blessings. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons to Himself through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Each of these sections addressing each person of the Trinity ends with praise. To the praise of the glory of His grace. We need to think about the riches of his grace this morning as well. But these first two blessings, divine election and divine predestination, are designed by God not to give us a sense of self-centered pride that we're the chosen of God, but they're meant to glorify God in salvation, to take away any basis for boasting, and to comfort us. To glorify God, to humble us, and to comfort us. This is the reason God has revealed this great and glorious truth. While we cannot resolve it in our minds, and Christians of different traditions work it out differently, but we are one in Christ, and we should be careful to labor diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a story about John Wesley and George George Whitefield who disagreed on this doctrine. And someone asked George Whitefield, who was more of a Calvinist, Wesley was more of an Arminian in his persuasion and interpretation. Someone asked George Whitefield, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And he said, no, he'll be too close to the throne for me to get next to him. That's my paraphrase. They disagreed, but they were one in Christ. And we're not so much to try to sort this out and reconcile this logically as we are to simply shut our mouth in awe and reverence and bless God for saving us. Look just briefly at a few passages where in in, um, Exodus chapter 33 and 34... Moses is concerned after the golden calf incident, after this tendency to idolatry and adultery. We're adulterers spiritually by nature. We're given over to going back again and again to our harlotry and our sin. And Moses says, don't don't send us into the land unless your presence is with us. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Or how will it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the earth? The distinguishing characteristic of God's people, the church, is that God is with us. He's dwelling in our midst. He's walking with us. And as grieved as we are, like that woman That sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, grateful and thankful for his grace. We too must plead with God as Moses did to show us his glory. Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. He says, I'll place you on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you. He is telling Moses that his glory is a sovereign glory. I will have mercy on whomever I please. And I will show grace and be gracious to whomever I will. And so when he passed, when the glory passed by, the gospel was proclaimed. And here's the connection with us as the church and the gospel. In our lives, in our lives as the gospel becomes precious to us and as we reflect it in the love we show to God and to our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the tender mercies of being forgiving toward one another when we have wronged each other, we display the glories of God's grace. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What a perfect balance in the gospel. The sovereignty of God's grace, His mercy, His goodness, His tender compassion for wayward sinners, and yet His measured justice for those who remain at enmity with Him. In John chapter 6 and uh, other places like John 14, Jesus speaks of this mystery and He says very carefully, that um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 14, we read, Jesus saying to his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it does not see him, neither does it know him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will reveal myself to him. It's what the Apostle Paul said. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's Christ living in and through us that brings forth this wonderful display of the grace and mercy of God. Divine election and divine predestination have to do with God's determination and decisions in eternity. Think of it from the standpoint of how it's comforting to us. Before you were ever created, before God laid the foundations of the world, he loved you in Christ because of your union with Christ that would come to be a reality in history. God loved you, and God planned to bless you and to to awaken you and to convict you of sin and to draw you to himself. No man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. If you're awakened, you must be born again, and awakened and quickened if you're born again and you see the beauty of Christ and are drawn to Him, it's because God, from before the foundations of the world, had set His love upon you. He's the potter. We're the clay. We have no business arguing with Him about this high doctrine. Let's just climb to the mountain peak and enjoy the vista and the beauty and the refreshment of the mountain air. May God give us the grace to respond as as the Apostle Paul did in Romans Chapter 9, the children of the promise are counted as descendants. Not only that, but Rebekah also had conceived by one man, our father Isaac, for before the children had been born, having done neither good, evil, nor good, so that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but through him who calls. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah. Chapter 11, he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, destroyed your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is the divine reply to him? I have kept for myself several thousand or I'm sorry, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's that number seven again. There's that perfect number. They have not bowed the knee to the Baal. I've kept them. I've preserved them. So then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But if it is by works, then it is no longer by grace. Otherwise, work would no longer be work. The Apostle Paul understood the sovereignty of grace and the importance of giving God the glory and recognizing that we're saved by grace, by faith. And it's not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. We have no grounds for boasting about where we are in Christ. Recently, I was reminded in the way that the Lord has provided new friends in my neighborhood. Friends that I've met, uh, a couple that actually were here one Lord's Day evening, that Lord's Day evening, three weeks ago. They worship at uh, a different church. But they're part of that 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Don't ever get so focused in on yourself as a small group thinking that you're the only one serving God faithfully. God is at work in the lives of people, His people, His heritage. Jesus in praying in the Lord's in this high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may also glorify You. This hour that we planned and talked about in eternity before the foundation of the world, this hour has come. It's now time for me the Lamb of God, to lay down my life. As you have given Him authority over all flesh, He will glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As you have given Him authority over all flesh, He will give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. This is eternal life. that may, They may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All that are mine are yours, and all that are yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. In that pact of salvation before the foundation of the world, the Father set forth the names of each and every one whose name is written in the book of life. Your name was there, dear believer, fellow saint, and and ransomed sinner. Your name was there. And Jesus came to that hour praying. And in heaven now, He ever lives to, to pray for us. He ever lives to intercede for us like the high priest with the, with the stones with the names of Israel on His shoulders and on His breastplate. Your name is inscribed. The tribes of Israel are on His heart and He bears us on His shoulders. He prays for you in heaven. He watches with yearning and longing for you to finish your race. Well, that's just a, a bare glimpse into divine election and divine predestination, predestined to adoption as sons. He has caused all things to work together for your life that in in his timing you came to be adopted into the family of God and you're a part of this body and this congregation, but you're a part of the larger body, the temple of God in which he is delighting to dwell, the spiritual house of worship. Well, we must go on then to His um, praise of the Beloved, the Son, verses 6b through 12, where we see three more distinct spiritual blessings that have been showered upon us through the Holy Spirit to the praise of the glory of His grace to the Father, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Paul now turns his gaze to Jesus, transfigured in glory perhaps on the mountain of transfiguration, thinking of him in glory, seated at the Father's right hand, standing as our advocate to plead for us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished On us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth. In Him also we have received an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His own will, that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, should live for the praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. We live for the praise of Christ's glory. The Jews who hoped first in Christ, then took the gospel and through Paul... This man who once sought to destroy the church was captivated by this amazing transformation in the lives of people, Jews and Gentiles. How can they be one in Christ? How can they have charity for each other? They had such animosity and alienation. It's a grace of God that the church transcends all the social barriers, all the, all the differences and the backgrounds. Many of these in Ephesus were slaves, the lowest in social status. But even the highest who were, who were believers in Christ had a bond of love and affection for each other. The Father's beloved Son is the focus of this praise in these verses and the three blessings are these, redemption, and in opposition to that, I take it the forgiveness of sins. That's why I kept with seven and not eight. The redemption, the purchase price. We've been ransomed. We're not our own. We belong to God. He's bought us back. He's, through the blood of Christ, found a way to grant forgiveness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The wonder of it all stirred Paul into glorious choruses of praise to bless him for his redemption, for what he did, to think about how he did not grasp his glory. He laid aside his robes of splendor and glory and came down from the third heaven into this world of filth and idolatry and adultery to rescue you and me from our sins, from our bondage and slavery to sin. We have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He lavishes with largesse and generosity this grace that we need for life. I spent time... This morning reviewing an article that I read years ago in the Baker Dictionary of Theology. And yes, that's a good tool. It's a good thing to do in your Bible meditation to look at at, uh, dictionaries and commentaries as, um, as we think about these things. I just want to read very briefly from that article. Charis, in the Greek, is essentially joyfulness. As used in the New Testament, by the New Testament, it conveys the combined meanings of the Hebrew words favor and loving kindness. But if it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. The exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound I like the old definition of grace, God, the, ac- the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. But it goes deeper than that. The essence of the doctrine of grace is that God is for us. What is more, he is for us who in ourselves are against him. More still, he is not for us merely in a general attitude, but has effectively acted toward us. Grace is summed up in the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is grace. Jesus' grace is God's grace uh, uh, embodied or incarnate. It is quite clear that the New Testament overwhelmingly associates the word grace with Christ, the executor of the grace of God. Jesus Christ is God for us in terms of the covenant. In his Son, God binds himself freely to us to be our God and binds us to himself to be his by becoming our God, He becomes to us what He is in himself, loving, holy, merciful, and patient, in a word, gracious, as He is God in himself, so He will be God toward us. He will assume our responsibility or the responsibility for our He will assume the responsibility for our past, present, and future. He no longer an enemy, stands with us against our real enemies, and that effectively, if God before us. Who can be against us? I have to read from Romans chapter eight. There's a verse in Song of Solomon that I was discussing with my wife this morning where he says, she says, "Love is stronger than death. Put me as a seal on your heart. Put me as a seal on your arm. Love is stronger than death." And when you think about it, that's what Paul is saying at the end of Romans eight. For I am persuaded in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities nor powers, neither things present nor things to come, nor neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Jesus undertook to accomplish in history, was to display the love of God for us in his actions and in laying down his life. And we're to have the mind of Christ. We're to take the form of a bondservant. We're to serve others. We're to lay our lives down for others. So these three gifts, redemption, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation, this mystery revealed, this idea that when... Adam and Eve rebelled and were driven out of the garden. There was a fracture in the relationship between God and his creation. The apostle Paul pleads with the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. I'm an ambassador for Christ. Be reconciled to God. Be sure that you're right with God this morning. You can be a church member and not be reconciled to God. You can be a proud and self-righteous hypocrite in the church of Jesus Christ in good standing and not have this love that that woman showed to Jesus in tears for her sins and adulterous ways, washing his feet with her tears and drying them with his hair. That man entertaining Jesus, Simon, didn't even offer water to wash Jesus' feet. She loved much. He loved little this reconciliation of the mystery is explained more clearly in that chapter 3 that uh, Keith read this morning. But think about it. God's plan, the architectural drawings that the Father set out on the table for the Son and the Spirit, this plan to bring together and reconcile all things in heaven and on earth was accomplished by Jesus Christ. This reunion, this union This um, uh, paraphrase for his purpose was to reunite all things, all made one in him. Well, the third blessing through the Son is this heritage, and I'm sure we're running out of time but i take the position that paul here at this point is speaking about the fact that we are made a heritage for god we're his people we belong to him he has chosen us and yes god does give us an inheritance and paul or peter speaks about that in his epistle it's being kept for us safe in heaven where it won't be stolen or uh, fade away we're being protected and brought safely into that eternal kingdom but here Paul wants these Ephesians, and the Spirit wants you to understand that God treasures you. I heard a theologian once say that God loves you. The Father has found a bride for His Son, and the Son's heart has gone pitter-pat for you because of God's love. He's in love and has accomplished your salvation because of this plan, the inheritance or the the heritage here that we have been made is what I want you to see and understand. God, we could read many passages, and I have, have some highlighted for us. There are many passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 9 is one of them. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary has said, Believers have been claimed by God as his portion in Christ. We're his portion." God will redeem his possession on the day of consummation. That, that God should set such high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former say, state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. As from the beginning he chose them in Christ. Deuteronomy 32 9. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of the Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. You see, Paul is saying, we have become his inheritance of the Lord. This is part of the, the, the rich spiritual blessing bestowed on us, lavished upon us through Christ. We need to know that and understand how much He cherishes us. I I can't read all of the references. You can do a Bible study on the word heritage. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 9, believers again are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. In 2 Peter, he says to the elders, don't lord it over the flock, the heritage of the Lord. You're messing with his inheritance if you elders lord it over and overpower authoritatively in your shepherding of these sheep. This is how much Jesus values us. Isaiah 43, 20 to 21, God speaks of my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. That's what Peter is getting at. We are a people to declare his praise as we let our light show, so shine before men in our joy, in our love for each other. How they love one another is what the world sees in a church that's healthy and spiritually minded. He will draw sinners to himself. I've, I've got a number of references. Uh, the Levites have no... I'm sorry. The um, David said to the Gibeonites, "What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord, first kings and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt." The Psalms speak of of um, how God will make the nations your heritage when he's speaking to Jesus. Ask of me, and I'll make all the nations your heritage, not just the Jews. I have to stop with those references, but challenge you to look up the references to heritage, and God's heritage is God's people. This is one of the great blessings of Christ. Finally, the promised Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and after believing in him we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. There's that possession again. He's marked us off as his and he's coming back to claim us and to take us to glory, to the praise of his glory. The two blessings of the Holy Spirit are that we are sealed with the Spirit and that the Spirit is an earnest or a down payment of our inheritance. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life to awaken you and to convict you of your sins, he is doing a work of grace. But Paul here is thinking of something far and beyond that. He's thinking of how the Holy Spirit fills us with this joy unspeakable full of glory. The Holy Spirit draws near at times when you're meditating on the word of God and rise to those mountain peaks and you bless God for what he's done. The Holy Spirit draws near and comforts your heart. The Holy Spirit brings assurance of salvation. And this assurance is involved in the sealing with the Spirit. You'll notice that he says it was after you believed that you were sealed. Now in the context of a of a church that's divided over The work of the Holy Spirit, it's easy to to, to stray into error. But let's keep our heads on straight and think in terms of what Paul meant. He meant that the Holy Spirit, like a seal, would impress his image upon us like molten wax. We reflect the character and the holiness of God. And as you see yourself being conformed to the likeness of Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit that sometimes comes, When you're meditating on a Bible verse and and you've you've got an experience, an overwhelming feeling of the presence of God, don't push that away. Enjoy that blessing of his nearness and, and presence. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of our inheritance. It's the guarantee that he's coming back to take possession of his property, his possession, his heritage. In a favorite passage of mine, and I'm going to conclude with this, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And just as you saw what kind of men we were among you for your sake, you became followers of us and the Lord, and you turned from idols to worship the living God. Look at your life. Look at from what you've been rescued and delivered. Look at Your desire to honor God as an evidence of that down payment. And I would say that when a preacher preaches with anointing in your midst, when the Holy Spirit gives power and boldness and grace to speak frankly to you, it's a down payment. It's a reminder of the down payment. It's a a sealing with the Spirit, perhaps. It's evidence that you're God's elect. That you're His heritage, that you belong to God in Christ. I'm looking for that doxology because I'm afraid if I try to try to, to um, quote it, I will misquote it. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. See how this compels Paul then to pray for these Ephesians, that they will come join with him on this mountaineering adventure to climb to the heights of these doctrines that are difficult to understand and grasp. And yet we need to climb to the Mount Everest of biblical revelation. We need to think about these things. And as we think about them, our hearts are strengthened and we experience the love of God in Christ in richer, deeper ways. Let's pray.